Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me. And you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. On February 9th of 2004, 21-year-old UMass student Maura Murray drove from her dorm in Amherst, Massachusetts to the White Mountains of New Hampshire. At approximately 7.27 p.m., Maura spun out her 1996 Saturn on a hairpin turn on Route 112 in North Haverhill. There has never been a credible sighting of Maura since. Maura is 5 foot 7 inches tall. She weighs 120 pounds, and she has brown hair and hazel eyes. If you have any information regarding Mora's disappearance, please submit it to us, the Murray family at Direct at gmail.com, or the New Hampshire State Police Cold Case Unit. This is Missing Mora Murray. Welcome back to Missing Maura Murray. I'm Tim here today with Lance being joined remotely. How's it going, Lance? It is going pretty well. All things considered, how are you today, Tim? Oh, just about the same, Lance. And in this episode, we speak to our friend, Michelle Kazuba, who helps us with private investigations for the missing and so much more. Kazuba is the layman pronunciation but uh, the the actual pronunciation is Kazube. She's a prosecutor, Tim, and she helps out a lot with uh, providing us with uh, information. And we feel it's important to have her on, and this is the second part of the interview, because what she's talking about is so layered and 
we want to make sure that it is clearly communicated. And this is our way to gather this information from professionals in this field so we can better educate ourselves and educate the listeners, especially from a legal perspective, when we discuss uh, these types of subject matters. Yeah, great call. And we discuss no-body cases and why they may or may not be prosecuted. I think that's interesting when you look at Maura Murray's case or when you look at Alyssa Turney's case. Yeah, and we we get these no body cases. Brianna Maitland is another one of those. Yep. Where what do you do? What, what do you do when you have all the other pieces in place that suggest a certain outcome, but legally you can't move forward with any prosecution unless other things start to fall in place. Okay, so I hope you enjoy the episode. We will play it in just a moment. But before we do, we just want to remind you to check out all the shows on the Crawl Space Media Network. There are some new shows, like a new one from Nama Cates that's recently started airing called Escape Hate. And you are going to hear a promo for Bill Thomas's podcast called Mind Over Murder in this episode. And do be sure to listen to this show because they have a great chemistry together, him and Kristen. And if you do follow Bill's work and you're a fan of him as he investigates the Colonial Parkway murders and his sister's murder connected to that case, you're going to love what they do on Mind Over Murder. And Lance, on this date, April 2nd, 2010, 41-year-old Jeanette Dupriest disappeared from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. She has not been seen or heard from since. Jeanette is 5 foot 11 inches, 195 pounds with blonde hair and brown eyes. She has several tattoos, a flower on the outside of her leg, the letters D-O-C on the right side of her neck. She has the words sexy mama above her right breast and Irving with a rose on her back and her name Jeanette on her arm. Jeanette is a devoted mother of eight children. She struggled with substance dependency in the past and managed depression with medication, which had been left behind. Anyone with information should contact the Philadelphia Police Department at 215-685-3252. Okay, so check out the links in the show notes, and thank you very much for listening. Stay safe. Welcome back to Missing Maura Murray. Michelle Casabo. how are you, Michelle? Hi, guys. How are you doing? Oh, we are doing so well. We had such a good conversation with you the last time you came on, and we had to cut it short because we were going to keep going. I mean, we were, we were probably slated for like three hours if we kept going. So we had to break it up, and it's great to get you back on to uh, do part two here. Yeah, and I'm happy to be here, of course. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, one of the topics we wanted to discuss today was more than one way to look at a homicide case. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? There's a lot of people who are involved in not just the true crime community and, you know, consuming all of these stories through podcasts, television, books, etc. There's also this great platform for crowd solving and citizen detectives. And considering the job that I have, Um, I like to be able to, and I want to be able to educate people along the way as much as I can to try to debunk some of those myths that might come up or give people a new way to look at something um, or look at a a case or a story. 
you know, there's this myth out there that every homicide is a murder, that when you say homicide, it equals murder immediately. So actually, a homicide is defined as conduct that causes the death of a person. So think of homicide as the big umbrella. And under it comes murder, accidental death. But you can also have murder that's committed with a depraved heart, which is the heat of passion killing. They characterize it like that in our law school books. And an example is something like this. You know, man comes home. He finds his wife in bed with another person. He's enraged. He pulls out a gun. He kills them both right then and there. That's a depraved heart killing. There's also manslaughter, which falls under that umbrella of homicide. So that's characterized by a perpetrator who intends to seriously physically injure another person or recklessly injures another person. But instead of injuring that person, they kill them instead. So the culpability is different for an intentional, premeditated, depraved heart, uh, reckless or negligent murder. I have a question. You made a uh, reference to depraved heart. You said, is that like an actual legal term? Some states will call it, um, you know, murder with a depraved heart. It's kind of an antiquated term um, or the heat of passion killing. Like in New York, that category of homicide and the subcategory of, of murder is encapsulated within the second degree murder statute. And that's a little bit more okay than uh, planned murder? Uh, I guess it's it's pretty safe to say that none of it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Um, no, but it's, it's a different culpable mental state. There's right. a murder that's committed, but what's the state of mind of the person that's actually committing it? There's a difference between someone that premeditates a murder. You know, they put together their their kill kit um, you know, or show up to a place with, you know, a knife, a gun, zip ties versus the person that walks in on a situation that causes that that anger to rise to a point where where a reaction, the reaction that comes forth is very extreme. And do you find that the people who commit those types of murders have more remorse or is it about the same? I think it's really hard to say every every case and every person is different. You'll see some defendants, some convicted murderers who do have remorse and you'll see others that don't. And it's I don't think you can I don't think I could say across the board that a person that commits a murder with depraved with a depraved heart could could or would have more remorse than a person who is who premeditated murders. Well, what about someone who commits a murder with a depraved heart because something happened in that relationship that sent them over the top, that escalated their their anger and they went into a rage, but they premeditated the murder of the person that they went into a rage over? Is the question, do you think that person has more remorse or are they are they more culpable than a person who doesn't premeditate a murder? Okay, no, uh, that's a good question. Um, yeah, would they have? Would you think that they would have more remorse, or would or and or are they treated differently by the legal system? So I guess my question is, you know, picture the scenario of a boyfriend who finds out that his girlfriend is cheating, and then he premeditates her murder. Uh, technically, she did something that escalated his rage, and he's and he ultimately killed this person. But is that considered the depraved heart scenario as well? I wouldn't consider it a depraved heart scenario because that would be the depraved. A depraved heart murder is it's something that ha, it's a very quick reaction. It's you see something that triggers you and you snap. If you have that time for, you know, the cooling off and the planning, 
then that takes that heat of passion, depraved heart kind of aspect out of it. And different states treat these kind of these kind of subsets of murder in different ways. You know, like for instance, in New York State, um, a premeditated intentional murder with more than one victim, we treat that as a murder in the first degree. Whereas a depraved heart murder or an intentional murder of one person is considered murder in the second degree. And it's different subsections of the statutes. One thing to say to draw a difference between the premeditated, the intentional, and the depraved heart. You know, an intentional murder is two people having an argument. One person pulls out a gun, shoots the gun, and the other person is killed. You intend to pull that gun out. You intend to pull the trigger. And you know that when you shoot at someone's chest, you're most likely going to kill them, right? The premeditated, going back to premeditated, is that that planning, that planning stage. It is an intentional murder, but there's more planning that goes into it. And then you have that depraved heart, heat of passion killing, where there really isn't that time to think. It just happens. And those cases are very hard to prove. There's another subset of murder, of, of the murder statute in New York. These are very hard cases to deal with, and that's depraved indifference. So a depraved indifference case, um, I'll give you an example. I worked on a trial in Queens where there was a group of people who were having a baby shower and my defendant and a few of his friends showed up. They were, you know, it was a co-ed baby shower. You know, there's men there, women there, you know, young people, older people. And the defendant and his friends showed up and they caused a bit of a scene. So the other gentlemen who were at this party, they threw them out of the party space and so as they're going outside like a, a fight erupts onto the onto the sidewalk onto the street during this fight there's this group of people probably somewhere between 20 30 people the defendant breaks away from the crowd gets into his car makes a u-turn drives up onto the sidewalk and just runs the car through the crowd oh my god he ends up seriously injuring two people and killing one young man who wasn't even involved in the fight. Ugh. And then he jumped out of his car and he fled. That's an example of depraved indifference where you know that when he got behind that car, you have to know that that car is a weapon. And he drove that car through that crowd of people without any regard for who might be hurt or killed. And that's really hard to prove because a lot of these culpable mental states, when you're talking about homicide as a whole it has a lot to do with the with the evidence and you're really trying to crawl into someone's head and prove to a judge or a jury you know hey this is what this person was thinking and this is how i'm going to prove it it's not easy tell us about this uh, kurt sova example um, so when i first heard about kurt sova's story it came to mind to me as a really good example of something that i think is really important for you know, the listeners of your podcast and, you know, our followers at PI for the Missing. And that's is that we have to be careful not to look at a death or disappearance and immediately rush to a verdict of murder when we think that something nefarious has happened. It's one thing to think that somebody was murdered, that someone was responsible for the death or disappearance of another person, but it's not always the case and we do have to keep that in mind. So when I think about Kurt's story, 
if I remember correctly, um, this happened back in 1981, and he had been found outside after having last been seen allegedly at a party, and he was missing for several days, and then his body was found outside with no obvious signs of homicide. There wasn't, you know, it wasn't, nobody saw a stab wound or a gunshot wound or, you know, like blunt force trauma, anything like that. The way I looked at it was you have to see where Kurt was last. And he was at a party with, with teenagers, people probably in their, you know, mid to late teens, early 20s or so. And the situations that could happen in a gathering like that could lead to something that got out of control and then put Kurt in this situation and in his final resting place. So just to kind of break that down, when we see people in distress as human beings. We want to hope that somebody's going to help them. What I'm trying to say is like the average person, like if something happened where like Kurt overdosed at a party or, you know, he got into a, a fight or something and got knocked out and never woke up, that like especially young people are going to, you know, they're going to divert to self-preservation instead of calling for help, try to cover something up. Are you saying that that's typical? I can't say if it's typical. Spoken like a true lawyer, right? Just can't can't settle on one answer. Commit to a commit to something. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but the point of of this is is when you when we start looking at these at these you know unexplained disappearances and unexplained deaths, we immediately want to say like, oh, this person was murdered. And sometimes, like a lot of the times, that is the case, and sometimes it's not. And in the situations where the person may be you know, deceased without any obvious signs of, of, of homicide or murder, you know, like a gunshot wound or blunt force trauma or a stab wound or something, or a person's missing under what could be nefarious circumstances, immediately our minds go to, oh, something bad happened. Oh, this person was murdered. But there could be these other situations that happened where if a person's at a party and, you know, they overdose or they get punched and they get knocked out and they don't wake up, self-preservation takes over the people that are there and instead of calling for help they want to cover it up it could have started as something that wasn't a homicide it could have been an accident right and then it becomes this situation where people start to cover up or tell a story or lie because they're afraid that their inaction is going to get them in trouble they were engaging in activities that could be risky or unlawful or embarrassing you know as for example you know using drugs or, you know, engaging in, in sexual acts with, with somebody or they were, you know, doing something or even just, you know, being being mean to the person who ends up deceased. In the case of Kurt Sover, if you have a bunch of people who are at a party, a bunch of young people at a party who are, you know, smoking marijuana or doing other kinds of drugs, and then if something happened to Kurt, Everyone's going to be, everyone might be more worried that, you know, hey, I was doing drugs. I'm going to get in trouble for that. Let's just bring him outside and somebody will find him. Right. We run into these examples when we talk about the Brianna Maitland case a lot. Um, This kind of situation arises and we've heard some rumblings again behind the scenes about this. So what you're saying is if there was a death at a party and people sort of acted to cover something up and and it wasn't a premeditated murder. You're saying that would be a different charge than murder in the first or something like that. Oh, absolutely. I can give you a really good example of what I'm talking about. 
Um, there was a case that I that I worked on, I think back in 2012 when I first went when I first came into homicide. And it was a young man who was probably in his mid 20s, uh, somewhere between 25 to 28 years old. He had two children, and he had a you know a girlfriend that he was that he was seeing on and off. He had gone to a party in an apartment building in Queens. Um, it was a friend of his, a childhood female friend of his, and it was a birthday party. Handful of people are there. Um, you know, our victim had um, substance dependency issues. You know, he drank, and he would drink to excess. And during the course of the party, the female friend's boyfriend got very, very mad at my victim and started punching him. So you're eventually when the autopsy results came back, his blood, his blood alcohol level was more than twice the legal limit. So you're talking about a person that is very intoxicated and he's getting punched to the point where he passes out. So what everybody at the party does is they drag his body out into the hallway and they leave him there and they call 911, but they don't tell him his name. They don't tell him what's wrong. They just say, yeah, there's a guy just, you know, passed out in the hallway. He's taken to the hospital. He is nameless when he passes away and his family finds out the following day. Fast forward to the autopsy. We're trying to figure out, you know, was this an overdose? Was it due to the alcohol consumption? Was there something else going on? Because there's no obvious signs of trauma on the outside of the body. When the medical examiner performed the autopsy, what she saw was there's, I believe it's an artery that runs up the neck into the head. And from being punched so violently and from the level of his intoxication and, you know, not being able to, you know, stand up straight or, you know, hold his, his body as straight as you, you'd want to in that state, the artery had tore and that's what killed him. He basically internally bled out. Okay. So that's a lesser charge, obviously. We ended up charging him with manslaughter in the first degree. That's the intent to commit serious physical injury punching somebody till they're knocked out, but instead cause death. Yeah. Wow. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. My name is Bill Thomas. I'm a victim's advocate and sadly the brother of a murder victim. 33 years ago in 1986, my younger sister Kathy Thomas, along with her girlfriend Rebecca Dowski, were the first two victims in the Colonial Parkway murders in Virginia, still unsolved more than 30 years later. Ten years ago, after the FBI lost control of 78 highly graphic crime scene photos, I became much more involved in the case. I've become the de facto leader of the eight families who lost loved ones in the Colonial Parkway murders. I'm working on a book on the case, and I'm the co-administrator of the Colonial Parkway murders Facebook group, together with Kristen Dilley. My name is Kristen Dilley. I'm a writer, researcher, teacher, and victim's advocate with a lifelong interest in true crime. I grew up listening to stories about the Colonial Parkway murders, 
So in 2015, I decided to write a book about how families cope with the aftermath of violent crime. I cold-called my co-host, Bill Thomas, and we developed a friendship and a professional partnership that led us to build the Colonial Parkway Murders Facebook page, and now this podcast. We'll be discussing solved and unsolved cases from across the country, including the Colonial Parkway Murders. We'll also be bringing in top true crime experts, investigators, forensic scientists, journalists, writers, other podcasters, and family members of victims to offer insight into these cases. Tune in to Mind Over Murder this January, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. Well, tell us about no body cases. And uh, we come into this sort of topic a lot in the line of work we do um, in covering Maura Murray and uh, speaking about some other cases too, like Alyssa Turney. That is obviously a, a, probably a really good example of why there hasn't been any prosecution of Michael Turney, even though it seems really obvious what happened in Alyssa Turney's disappearance. So no body cases are classically some of the hardest cases for police and detectives to make an arrest on and for prosecutors to prove. And it's very frustrating because in a lot of these cases, the perpetrator is so obvious. You know, you were just talking about, you know, Alyssa Turney's disappearance. The perpetrator is so obvious, but yet there's still no arrest. And it's very frustrating for the true crime community as well as the family. Well, so what are some of the circumstances that uh, any justice or there could be any prosecution in a no body case where everything else is so obvious? Yeah, you know, there's two main ways that the detectives will bring evidence to a prosecutor and the prosecutor will piece together these two different kinds of evidence. So the easy one is direct evidence. That's the fact-based evidence, evidence that is based upon the observation or the knowledge of a witness, an eyewitness. Eyewitness sees a defendant take a gun from her purse, shoot the victim. Criminalist observes a stain on the victim's shirt, swabs it for DNA, gets a hit in CODIS, right? Medical examiner performs an autopsy, recovers the bullet that killed the victim. Direct evidence. That's the easy stuff. No body cases, however, are based on circumstantial evidence, which is sets of facts and observations that when you take them all together and you examine them all together like a puzzle, creates this inference that the matter that's asserted, this person killed this victim, is true. So one of the examples that we that we give during jury selection, during the, the few trials that I've done, when we're talking about circumstantial evidence is this. Imagine a time when we were all allowed out of the house, right? It seems like it's years ago at this point. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I don't know what outdoors is. <laughs> you leave your house, you get on the subway to go to work in the morning. You walk down to the underground station. As you're going downstairs, the sun was shining. Everything was great. Now you're on the subway, you're traveling underground. You have a few stops to go until you reach your destination. And as the doors open... At the last couple stops, you see people entering the subway cars. They're shaking water out of their hair. They're carrying wet umbrellas. Um, They're wearing raincoats and rain boots. So what are you able to figure out from that scene? That it's raining, right? Yes, that it's raining outside. You can't see the rain, though, because you're underground on the subway. But you take all those little pieces, you know, the soggy people, the wet umbrellas, the raincoats. You piece it together in your mind and you say, okay. That's what's happening. I am certain that it's raining. So that's that's circumstantial evidence. Gotcha. That makes sense. Okay. Right. Because, well, what else would it be? 
Could you say that it's circumstantial evidence that a, that a fire hydrant came loose and sprayed a bunch of people? Is it possible? Yes. But is it probable? Is it likely? Probably not. Right. Gotcha. Okay, cool. The most, um, the most simple explanation is usually, usually the one that is the most probable. I go back and forth on that Occam's razor thing because people just like they, they love to say it's Occam's razor 100% of the time. Yeah, it's just a little too convenient sometimes. I, I, I don't think yeah. you can really use it in certain cases. Like we've talked about the Maura Murray case. I, I don't really know you can exactly use it. Right. Just like with anything, it's a case by case basis. Every single every single case, every story has its own very particular set of facts and where there are some things that might be similar with other cases or different from other cases. You can't you can't prescribe the same you, you can't you can't prescribe the, the same you know, response to the case or or theory to the case, right? As you would right. the one next to it, because they're all different. Right. And and you have to understand that there's a human element that goes into every single one of your cases. And not just the human element of the victim. Yeah. I don't know how you could get a uh, distinct baseline in either one of those examples. I don't think you get a baseline anywhere. Right. Because of the human element, like you like you just said. I mean, not just the human element of the victim, but also, you know, the, the investigators, the prosecutor, yeah. you know, the... The, the natural elements of where the where the person disappeared from or where a body was found. There's just there's too many things that that are so personal and unique to each victim story. And I've seen this in a lot of these cases where you, know, you can't try to fit everything into the same mold. If you do that, then you're just asking for trouble. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit about, I know you probably didn't prepare for this, but can you tell us a little bit about Alyssa Turney's case and, and why that one, in your opinion, hasn't gone to uh, prosecution? So when I look at no body cases, I have a few little checkpoints that I keep in mind as I go through just to kind of guide me. Those checkpoints are, are there forensics? Is there a lack of forensics? What's fact and what's your gut feeling? And who is this person? Are they allowed to go missing? So starting with forensics, no matter what state or country you're in, to prove murder of any degree, you have to show that the victim died. You can show it through the direct evidence or you can show it through the circumstantial evidence. When there's no body, how do you prove that murder? If you're examining a crime, a crime scene and it shows a massive amount of blood and you have a pathologist that can testify and say, this amount of blood was here. A person could not survive that much bleeding without medical intervention. And you take that in conjunction with other circumstantial evidence, it makes a very compelling case for murder. For example, the Jennifer Dulos case. She was the mother of five who went missing in Connecticut very recently. Her husband was arrested based on circumstantial evidence back in January of 2020, I think, after authorities mm -hmm. um, executed a search warrant on his home. In that case, they had a lot of puzzle pieces, a lot of circumstantial evidence, but a big part of it was they had a pathologist that was able to say, from the amount of blood that we found in various places, this person could not have survived without medical treatment. Yeah. So that pathologist was was able to say, you know, here's the blood, too much. I can say certainly that she is probably deceased. Now, if you turn back to Alyssa's case, you don't have, from what I know, the forensics aren't there. If you don't have that indication that somebody had been seriously physically injured or hurt or killed in a space, then it's really hard to prove that the person is actually deceased. Yeah. Which brings me to 
the, the second point of, you know, yeah, we all have a gut feeling that we know what happened, but your gut feeling isn't fact, that's not evidence. You know, instinct is one of the most powerful tools that we have as human beings. We get hunches. We have these nagging feelings, you know, especially think of like, you know, a mother who, when you watch these shows and stuff, you hear, you know, the mother has this feeling in the pit of her stomach. There's something wrong. My son didn't come home. Sure. You know, it's those things that we just know, but it's not evidence of a crime. Quick question. What about a scene that has uh, a little bit of blood, more more or less like it looks to be uh, something like a fight or a struggle occurred and there's no body and do the two of those maybe come together as like something that you could say, chances are this person did not survive or is it ultimately about the forensics? The forensics play a part in it, but it's also the other pieces of the story and then other circumstantial evidence that, that brings it together, you know, going back to the example of, you know, the disappearance of Jennifer Dulos, not only did they have the blood evidence in, in the house, and in other places, but they had surveillance video of, you know, a car that was linked to her husband that was, you know, seen at different places and there were bags and other items that were thrown into different dumpsters around Hartford, Connecticut, I believe. And they were able to follow that surveillance video. It kind of reminded me of what myself and the detective did with our Lionel Pickens homicide you know, followed the surveillance video and saw where this car was going. And then when they actually, when the police actually got to these different sites, were able to recover bags that were similar, were able to recover DNA off of those bags to say, okay, this person, her husband was here. He touched this bag. He threw it in there. Her blood is on this bag as well. It's really hard to talk about Alyssa's story because it's one of, in a way, it reminds me of stories like, you know, Susan Cox Powell and Natalie Holloway. You know, these are people who we know, we know who's responsible. We know that that something nefarious has happened to this sweet person, but how do you prove it? It doesn't mean that the perpetrator is infallible. If a jurisdiction has a case like Alyssa's, or Jennifer Dulos's case, or another, you know, other victims who we've heard about a lot, you know, like Susan Cox Powell, Natalie Holloway. It's up to that jurisdiction working within the the confines of their judicial system and the laws of that state to determine if they have enough evidence to bring a case to trial. So what I'm saying is the, di- the different puzzle pieces for each case are going to be different shapes and sizes, and they're going to be different shapes and sizes in every state. With a homicide case, as with any crime in the United States, if you are acquitted, then you can't be tried again for the same crime. So you have to be sure that your circumstantial evidence is going to prove that this person killed this other person and hid his or her body beyond a reasonable doubt. Cause if that person gets acquitted, then that's it. It's, it's over. Now is uh, the collection of DNA found at a crime scene considered circumstantial evidence? And what uh, issues do you come across with any sort of a search and seizure for, for DNA? Another one of the, the myths that I think surrounds true crime is that DNA is always going to be there to save the day. As circumstantial evidence or direct evidence, you won't always have DNA. Or what's even worse is that 
you have DNA, but not enough DNA. So like a lot of the techniques that we that we talk about or that we're hearing about, you know, like genetic genealogy, familial searching, touch DNA, they need different amounts of DNA in order to you know, yield a successful profile or successful results. So when you're looking at yeah. disappearances or cold cases, you know, by virtue of them being older or unsolved, you have to look at the evidence collection methods, you know, or the lack thereof way back when. So how much DNA is enough? Yeah, I mean, we we come into the we ran into this issue in the Moore Murray case, and in, in uh, the Oxygen documentary, they said that the uh, the blood that was apparently on those wood chips was too deteriorated to get a full profile, and so it was mostly valueless. But um, yeah, what how how could that be different? I guess. Let's think of DNA in terms of quality and quantity. So quantity is going to be affected by. Is the DNA old and degraded? Because a degraded sample, you're not going, you're going to have a lesser chance of getting a full profile. Um, was it contaminated or, you know, was it DNA that was decomposing? You know, something like that. You're going to have a harder time getting or no chance of getting a full DNA profile or a usable DNA profile out of DNA in that condition. And then on, on the other side, you know, quantity, you need to have enough in order to make use of all of these new methods and and scientific methods that we're seeing, like genetic genealogy, familial searching, touch DNA, things like that. So not only do you have to have quality DNA, but you also have to have enough in order to get that profile. And, you know, something that I learned about genetic genealogy early on after, you know, reading up on the Golden State Killer case was that you actually need a pretty large amount of DNA in order to you know, make use of the genetic genealogy techniques, because you have to, you're not only pulling you know, a full forensic profile, you're creating a person's entire, you're creating the entire genome. So in Golden State Killer case, what they had was you know, an entire unopened rape kit from one of the victims that they were then able to directly compare to other samples that they were able to pull off of other cases. And that's, kind, that's almost like one of those one in the million type things that happens and why it works so well for that case. But in, in other cases, you know, going back to say, you know, the case that I talked about in the last episode of, you know, the murder of Christine Diefenbach, um, you know, if you don't have enough DNA at the scene, if, you know, they weren't collecting DNA in a certain way in 1988 that we would nowadays in 2020, you know, I might not have enough DNA from that scene to create a full genome in order to make use of genetic genealogy. And if you want to talk about um, search and seizure issues, I think that there's a really, really big privacy debate that goes along with DNA because DNA is touted as being so personal to each one of us because it is. It's what makes us us. So it's what makes us all individuals. However, here's something that you have to think about when you're when you're looking at familial searching and genetic genealogy and things like that. You know, the Fourth Amendment gives us our privacy rights in our own stuff, our house, our car, you know, our DNA. However, if I swab my cheek, I send it to 23andMe or Ancestry, and I decide that I'm going to upload my profile into a public database, the only person that has a privacy interest in that DNA is me. So if one of my relatives goes out and commits a crime and a DNA profile is pulled from that scene, the police get that full genome and they have that full profile and they plug it into the public DNA database and they genealogically connect it to, to me, that 
relative who committed the crime can't go running to the court and say, hey, that's not fair because they don't have any privacy ownership in my DNA. Because they don't own your DNA. It's not like you have a uh, a joint uh, lease with your, just because they're your relative, you don't jointly own your DNA. That is That is your decision, right? And that's a legal concept that we learned that's called standing. And it works in in everything, not, not just DNA. What if you opposed that as, so your, your family member, in the hypothetical scenario, your family member commits this crime. And then I guess my question is, would, would you be able to say, I think that this is unreasonable search and seizure looking into like acqu- acquiring my DNA? Only if I'm arrested for the crime. Like an outside citizen, an ordinary citizen can't can't claim a Fourth Amendment privilege in their DNA that convicts somebody else because it surrounds the your constitutional rights of being accused of a crime. So if I'm not on trial, I can't oppose my DNA being used in the criminal arena. Only the person who's on trial can can try to claim a Fourth Amendment right to the evidence that's being presented against them. But it's my DNA and the defendant doesn't own it, so he can't claim a right. Like one of the examples, one of the ways this comes up that's a little bit more um, tangible is car stop. You know, a person, only person in the car gets pulled over for a traffic violation. Police officer says, you know, can I have your license registration? Is this your car? And the person in the driver's seat says, no, it's my cousin's car or it's my sister's car. And then at that point, you know, the police officers search the car and they find they find drugs in the car or they find a gun in the car. And when once we go to a, to a hearing and the defendant starts saying there isn't, you know, you can't you couldn't go in that glove compartment because, you know, I have standing. I have a privacy interest in this car. As a prosecutor, I turn around and say, well, you told us that this wasn't your car. We looked at the registration and it belongs to your sister. So you don't have any privacy interest in this car right now. That's my that's my argument. Why don't you um, talk a little bit about your work with uh, Private Investigations for the Missing? I think a lot of people already know that you have a big hand in that. You're on the board, and you also are very involved with the blog. And you want to chat a little bit about the blog from Private Investigations for the Missing? Yeah, I, I do, because I really want you know a lot of your listeners, just everybody, to go check out the blog. I'm sure that you guys will probably post the the website in the show notes that if you don't already have the the website, you know, like in your saved favorites on your browser, then you should totally do that right now. Because um, usually a couple times a week, we post up on the blog. Um, you know, one of the things that we enjoy is the podcast spotlight where we get to interview a lot of really amazing podcasts, you know, a lot of podcasts who, you know, people who are friends of the show and you know, who are pretty popular in the podcast sphere, you know, like Laura Norton from The Fall Line and Robin Warder from Trail Went Cold, um, you know, they contributed to us. And, you know, you get to also look into, you know, some newer podcasts that you might not have have heard of or want to learn more about. So you, you see, you know, like um, Melissa from Victimology and, you know, Naptime Nancy and her podcast, like, Everybody kind of, you know, they get into, you know, what makes them, you know, what got them into podcasting, you know, what their passion cases are, things like that. And another part of the blog is our missing persons profile. So they're a little bit longer than the On This Date series. And, you know, some of them I write, some of them are written by other friends of the show, like Sarah Kayleen and Chris Duet. And it profiles, you know, cases in more detail to try to 
to try to you know, get you get everyone acquainted with the actual person who's missing and not just the circumstances of their case. <laughs> and lastly, we have informational type pieces. Um, you know, Lou Barry, who's done a ton of excellent work with Brianna Maitland's investigation. You know, he writes a lot of a lot of pieces on um, on private investigating and investigations in general that are really helpful for understanding the stuff that he does. Um, you know, I've been trying to write some more on on the the law and investigative end of it. Um, you know, we're I'm putting together with Jillian, you know, like a small series on the no body cases, things like that. So if any of my explanations yeah. came across unclear, hopefully my writing will be better. <laughs> but I urge everybody to to check it out. We do a recommended reading every week. Um, you know, and you know, if you're a podcaster or a blogger or a PI or a law student, or you have a case if you have a, a case that you're working on that needs some attention or you want to talk about your podcast and your passion case, email us at piftmblog at gmail.com and you know, we'll set you up with something and get you on our blog too. When a person goes missing, their loved ones often find themselves overcome with worry and grief. Bruce Maitland started the 501c3 nonprofit organization, Private Investigations for the Missing, because he knows this feeling all too well. When Bruce's daughter, Brianna, disappeared in March 2004, he was surrounded by licensed private investigators dedicated to finding her. Now his mission is to provide dedicated private investigators at no cost to other families of the missing, desperate for answers but without the financial means. Private Investigations for the Missing needs your help. To read the mission statement, make a donation, and keep up with our blog, visit us at investigationsforthemissing.org and follow us at PI for the Missing on Twitter and Facebook and Investigations for the Missing on Instagram. Because forever is too long to wait. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.